If you're like me, when you wake up, one of the first things you do is probably check what's happening on Facebook. And you open up your Facebook, you see what your friends have been posting, and usually, uh, they'll, especially on Sabbath morning, someone has posted a really nice picture and overlaid over this beautiful picture is some very inspirational, encouraging and uplifting Bible verse, probably from one of the Gospels or maybe from an epistle. But I can't remember the last time I woke up in the morning, I went to check my Facebook feed, and somebody had posted something about the destruction of the city of Edom from the book of Obadiah. Or the last time I woke up and somebody had decided to share their thoughts on the book of Joel, for example. It's just not something that happens that often. And usually it's because we have a sort of uncomfortable feeling when it comes to a lot of passages in the Old Testament. There are a lot of things that we can't explain or we don't understand or that might seem uh, a bit violent or aggressive. And as we read these passages, they make us feel a bit uncomfortable. And so usually they're not quite the things that we like to publicly share with everyone. And wrestling with those difficult texts in the Bible is an important part of every Christian's journey of faith, figuring out what is the character of this God that we all serve. It's a it's a necessary part that everyone has to wrestle with and go through. But if that uncomfortable feeling is left unresolved, and if that is then taken to its furthest extreme, you can end up with some ideas that are a little bit wonky. And the first person to ever come up with this idea was a man by the name of Marcion. Now Marcion, he was uh, a Christian but his mentor, oddly enough, was not a Christian. His mentor was a Gnostic, and a Gnosticism was probably the biggest threat to the early church in the first few centuries of its growth. Nothing was trying to infiltrate the church more than this belief system called Gnosticism. And really, the main idea was very simple. The Gnostics believed that there was an evil deity. And this evil deity called the Demiurge, he was evil because he had created the physical world. So everything that you can touch and feel, they thought that it was created by an evil deity. And they believed that anything that was material or physical was inherently evil. And so anything which was spiritual or immaterial or not made of a physical object, they believed was a good thing. So the worldview of this of the Gnostics was basically anything material is bad and anything immaterial or spiritual is good. And so this man, Marcion, he's converted to Christianity and as he's being taught these ideas by his mentor, he begins to read the Bible. And as he reads the Bible, he struggles to reconcile how the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. When he reads the Old Testament, all he sees is a God who's angry one who's mad, one who has no love for humanity. And then when he comes and looks at the New Testament, he sees this God who's all about love and smiles. He's all about kindness and compassion. And so Marcion determines in his head that these two gods in the Old and New Testament, they cannot be the same person. They have to be two different gods. And so he believes that the Old Testament God is this demiurge who created evil matter, who's imprisoned humanity in a body of flesh and bone that we can't escape. And then he looked at the New Testament and said, ah, now here we have 
a kind and loving God who wants to free us from our bodies of flesh and make us spiritual beings. And he believed that Jesus was a messenger of this good news. Uh, now, what's interesting is he viewed the law as intrinsically evil. He thought anything in the Old Testament was absolutely had to go, but the New Testament gospel, it was, it was good stuff. And so when he created his own version of the Bible, he completely cut out the Old Testament. He said, no, no Old Testament for me. We're not interested in this evil God who has nothing to do with humanity. But then when it came to the New Testament books, he also had the same problem. So for example, the book of Matthew is very focused on Old Testament prophecies, and it's heavily focused on the law. So Marcion, as he's putting his Bible together, he says, all right, that's it. Matthew doesn't make it into the cut. I'm getting rid of the Gospel of Matthew. Then he came to the epistles, and he said, well, I like a lot of the stuff that Paul writes, but I'm getting rid of First and Second Timothy, getting rid of Titus. They're just a little bit too Old Testamenty for me. So Marcion chucks out some of the epistles on the way as well. And then he loved the Gospel of Luke, but he didn't like the first two chapters, which were about Jesus being born. Because for him, he thought, wait, how can the messenger about being free from your physical bodies be born with a physical body? So the entire story of Jesus' birth is also cut from the book of Luke. And so Marcion was left with this mangled, really distorted uh, Bible edition that he had made that had no Old Testament and was missing most of the books that we have in our current New Testament. But it was what he needed to do in order to justify his belief that the Old Testament God and the New Testament God were two different people. Now, it's pretty clear to see why Marcion and his beliefs probably weren't that correct. Uh, for for starters, notice that Marcion's beliefs didn't come from any intense study of scripture. They didn't come from him meditating over the texts of the Bible. It was because he was personally unable to reconcile these two different depictions of God, which really were one overarching, continuous revealing of the character of God. So it was really just his personal preference and his uh, personal understanding that led him to this belief. But then, as we've briefly covered, uh, to hold this view of what became later known as Marcionism, the belief of two different gods in the Old and New Testament, it really just messes up all the rest of your theology. Uh, you can't have a trinity. If the Old and New Testament God are different, then you basically get rid of the entire doctrine of the trinity, one of the core foundations of Christian belief. The cross has to go as well. We believe that the cross is... Uh, Jesus offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. But that doesn't float in this worldview. It can't be that Jesus is here to free us from our prison bodies. So you have to get rid of the cross. You have to get rid of the great controversy because the great controversy is all about the character of God being vindicated. But if the Old and New Testament God are two different people, then what's the use in this great controversy? The, these two people have two very different characters, so the great controversy has to go as well. The canon of scripture, or uh, that's a fancy term for what belongs in your Bible, as we saw, he had to make his own Bible just to make everything work, so that has to go. Uh, any understanding of the law, Marcion said, I don't like the law, it's got to go. And anything to do with typology, and typology is just another fancy word to describe 
anything in the Old Testament that points forward to Jesus in the New. So, for example, uh, the lamb sacrifices that were offered in the sanctuary are a type, and the anti-type or the fulfillment of that was Jesus, our perfect lamb sacrifice. But again, if the Old Testament God is different from the New, then you can't have any shadows or any uh, predictions of Jesus in the New Testament because these two gods would have very different goals. And so really, uh, it's, I find it interesting that just one little idea, one small idea that perhaps these two gods are two different people, just that one little thought completely messes up everything else in Christianity. You have to, to uh, adhere to that view, you have to throw out everything else. But Marcionism uh, didn't die with Marcion, and in fact it just grew and it spread, and it's been coming up uh, through church history ever since. One of the things, uh, one of my little hobbies I like is to read comics, and I like to keep a little pulse on what's happening in the comic community, and there was a big stir. Uh, there was a huge controversy about a new book that was coming out. And uh, it was, it piqued my curiosity. What could everyone be so mad about? Like, no one cares when any other issue of Superman comes out. What's going on? Why, why is everyone so frustrated? And this was the cover of the first issue. Uh, it was called Second Coming. Now, just from the, uh, the, the cover, I'm pretty sure you can figure out already why some people weren't very pleased. The premise of the book is this, God in the Old Testament, he's angry, he's evil, he's wrathful, and he gets sick of dealing with humanity. He's tired of humans, they're just so frustrating to work with, and so he says, look Jesus, you have a turn, you see if you can work with these people. And Jesus, this nice, kind, compassionate person, very different from his father, comes down to earth, uh, he preaches for about 30 years, and then he accidentally gets crucified. And God the Father, he's so embarrassed, he says, that's it, Jesus, you're never going back down to earth. You're an embarrassment to me. Then we skip 2,000 years into the future, and God's looking down from heaven, and he sees this superhero called Sunstar. And Sunstar, he's taking out bad guys, he's you know, fighting crime, he's enacting justice, and God the Father says, ah, now, that's a man who takes action. That's someone who knows how to get the job done. And so he approaches this superhero and says, I want you to mentor my son Jesus, tell him how to be a real man. My, Jesus is just too wimpy for my liking. And basically, again, you have this idea that the Old and New, Covenant, or Old and New Testament God are two very different people. At the very end of the first issue, he gives a little discussion, the author, as to what he's talking about. And he says, well, you know, uh, everyone has a right to their, uh, their opinion about who Jesus is. So he says... Consider this my heresy. He actually uses those words, which I find very funny. Because really, it's nothing new. It's not a new heresy at all. It's just the same idea repackaged slightly differently. The idea that the Old and New Testament God are different people. Have a look at how uh, the author describes the law in uh, one of the issues. And again, there's this idea that the law is always intrinsically evil in this idea of Marcionism. Uh, he says, keeping the human race from devouring itself soon became a full-time job for God. I never saw him much after that. Skipping down to the next one, to keep the human race in line, God came up with the idea of law, which is just sort of another word for revenge. Um, so you have this idea, again, that the law, it's just evil. It's only ever about 
getting revenge on people. It, it, there's no love there in the Old Testament law. But again, uh, it's just uh, another example of this idea cropping up over and over and over again. But in order to do this, the author, again, has to ignore basically every time where Jesus talks about the law. The Sermon on the Mount is one long uh, discussion of Jesus not only explaining the law, but giving it a higher standard. You know, He says it's not just if you murder someone physically. He says if you look with, uh, at a brother or sister in anger, you commit murder in your heart. So Jesus actually elevates the standard of the law. But in order to hold this view, you have to ignore that. And even recently, many pastors have come under fire for uh, proposing that perhaps Christians, we just need to forget the Old Testament, has no binding relevance. Uh, I'm sure you've commonly heard many a time, the Ten Commandments have no relevance to Christians. Uh, the Old Testament, it's all just this meanness and rudeness. And the, love, uh, the New Testament is all about love. And we hear this idea come over and over and over again in lots of different forms, in the ancient history, in our churches today, and even apparently in comic books. You can't escape this idea that the Old and New Testament God are somehow two different people. Now notice that together, as we've just looked briefly at some examples of this idea, we haven't actually tried to defend a position of why the Old and New Testament God are the same people. Uh, and I believe it's important that we don't do that because the burden of proof is not on us as Christians to defend that position. And I think a lot of the time when we're posed with a new idea or posed with a question, our, our kind of fallback is usually to try and defend our position. You know, we put the gloves up and we want to defend our belief. But the burden of proof really is on someone with a new idea to prove to us that for 2,000 years worth of church history, that that idea is somehow wrong. The onus of responsibility is not on us, it's on someone with a new idea to prove that it is a good idea. Whenever I have someone come up to me and say something along the lines of, well, you know, I just don't think maybe the Trinity is a real thing. And I go, wow, that's a, that's a really fundamental part of the Christian faith, like that's a big claim to make. I often think um, of this image here. You have here, you have the early church fathers, and you have all these reformers, the scholastics, these people who have studied the Bible for 2,000 years. We have the cumulative knowledge of thousands of years of church history, people writing books. And then today we have one modern theologian trying to build his entire doctrine from scratch. I go, wow, like, it's a, very, it's a very arrogant thing to say or to suggest that for 2,000 years, some fundamental truth about the Christian faith has gone unnoticed, and only now in 2019 have we finally recognized and realized what it is. So, uh, yeah, I get a little bit cheeky, and I think about this image every time I have someone come up to me and say, oh, I, I think I've found something brand new. The Trinity isn't real. I go, well, I think you're going to have to prove that to 2,000 years of Christian history that says otherwise. So the God of the Old and New Testament are clearly the same God, and it's not our responsibility to show why that is true. And so, as we've looked briefly at these examples, we haven't really tried to prove that uh, the Old and New Testament God are the same, but rather look at all of the things that go wrong when you suggest that the Old and New Testament God are different. 
And so now I just want to briefly take the opportunity to read and uh, really just deep, go deep into one short story about the love of God in the Old Testament. Uh, really, when I started the sermon, I just wanted to talk about God's love in the Old Testament. And I thought, oh, wow, there is an actual name for that, um, Marcionism. And I thought, that'll be a great excuse for me to just pick a text and go really deep into uh, a passage about God's love in the Old Testament. So let's have a look in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, and we just want to look at one example of God's love in the Old Testament, because it's plainly everywhere, and I really struggle to understand, uh, yeah, why, why the, the uncomfortableness has taken them to an extreme of, well, it has to be two different people. Because the love of God in the New Testament is clearly demonstrated in the Old on every single page. And so we're going to look through a story that's a little unusual and a little bit strange, one that we probably don't read often, but I think we're going to find some really interesting things in here. Genesis chapter 15, and we'll begin in verse 7. In the context of this passage, God, he's speaking to Abraham, or as he's called at this time, Abram. And... God, in the past, he's promised to Abram that he will give him a land and that he will give him descendants to inherit that land. But Abraham's feeling a, a little bit doubtful. He's not sure if God's going to uphold his promise to him. So this is, what, uh, this is how the conversation begins in verse 7. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And Abram said, Lord God, how will I know that I will inherit the land? So Abraham wants assurance that the promise or the covenant that God has made to Abram will be fulfilled. He says, God, how do I know I can trust that I will inherit the land? How do I know that you're going to give me children and descendants? And I find it really interesting that the question Abraham asks is, God... How will I know that you will be faithful to me? It's a very unusual question to ask. How will I know that you'll be faithful to me? I was singing um, the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, one day in church. And we got to the chorus where it says, Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, your hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. And that last line stuck with me for a bit. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. And I just thought for a second, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Why is God faithful to me? For what reason does God have to be faithful to me? God is the ultimate creator of all things. He's lasted for all eternity. He's the most superior being in the entire universe. And here I am, just a bit of dust that's gone like that. And God is faithful to me. And that really impacted me, thinking about God being so loving and so intimate. And when you consider the gods at this time that the, uh, other people worshipped at the time of Abraham, these gods were really, really harsh. Uh, the Babylonian gods, they created humans just to make them slaves. And when the humans, they populated too much, they became too noisy, the gods in heaven, they couldn't sleep, and so they destroyed humanity just because they couldn't get to sleep. That's what the Babylonian myths say. And sacrifices were given to these gods to appease them because you wanted you know, your crops to grow that year. 
you, you wanted to make the gods happy. And these gods, they were far removed. They were distant from the people. And yet here, God, he is intimate and personal with Abraham. He comes down and he makes a promise to Abraham. He doesn't expect Abraham to do things for him. Rather, God says, hey, hey, uh, hey Abraham, here's what I am going to do for you. So here already we see this picture of a God who so loves his creation that he promises to be faithful to his creation. Let's continue reading in verse 9 through 11. So Abraham said, okay, God, how am I going to know that you're going to be faithful to me? And here's what God says in reply. He says, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all of these to him, and Abram cut them in two down the middle. And he placed each piece opposite the other, but he didn't cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. Now, this is one of those passages that makes us uncomfortable, because it's really weird. It's very unusual. What is going on in this passage? God says, all right, I want you to bring me some sacrifices. And then Abraham cuts the animals down the middle, and then he puts the halves either side like this. Like, that's a really unusual thing to do. Imagine if we walked into church, and as you walk down this aisle here, there were just like halves of a, a chicken either side. Like, it wouldn't be a very welcoming way to come to church. So what is going on in this passage, and why did God ask Abraham to do this? Well, we've discovered that during this time period, this was a very common way of creating a covenant or a legally binding promise between two parties. So once the animals were cut in half and they were put either side of each other, the person who was of the inferior rank, so the person who was subservient in the relationship between the two, they would walk in a figure eight pattern between these pieces of meat. And in so doing, they were symbolically saying, if I do not uphold my part of this promise, or if I am not faithful to this covenant, what has been done to these animals, let that be done to me. So walking through those pieces of the animal was really placing a potential death sentence on yourself. It was saying, if I do not, uh, if I do not fulfill the parts of this agreement, I agree to have the death penalty on myself. And we find uh, an interesting example here. This is uh, an Assyrian king, Ashur Nirana V. And this is a covenant that he made with someone who he conquered. So he conquered their land, and to make sure that this person would be uh, loyal to him and his country, they did this ritual of cutting the animals in half. And here's what the record of it says. The king says to his uh, new vassal, this head is not the head of the ram, by the head of Mati Ilu. If Mati Ilu violates the oath, as the head of this ram is struck off, so will the head of Mati Ilu be struck off. So it's this idea that, uh, yeah, if you are not completely faithful to this covenant, what has been done to this animal, let it be done to this person. And again, every time this covenant was made, the person who would walk through the animal was the person of inferior rank. It was never the king, it was his servant. It was never a ruler, it was his general. It was always the person of inferior rank who would walk in between the pieces. So here, God says, all right, Abraham, let's do a covenant. Let's do it in the way that you're used to. You know, this is 
the way people do covenants in your time. So we'll do it your way. So who do we expect to walk between the pieces of the meat? Let's find out in verse 17. Verse 17, it says, It came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold there approached a smoking oven, a burning torch that passed between the pieces. And on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. So God is a pillar of fire. He's the one who walks in between the sacrifices, even though it should be Abraham. Abraham, between God and Abraham, Abraham doesn't stand a chance. He is the inferior one. God is the, the king. He's the ruler. Abraham is the servant, the general. But instead of Abraham walking in between the sacrifice, just like every other covenant would be, God, the person who is superior in this, is the one who walks in between the sacrifice. Now, why is it that God would walk in between? God knew that Abraham and his descendants would be incapable of upholding their end of the covenant. He knew that eventually down the track they would break the covenant that they had made with God. And when they did that, the death penalty would be on them. So God, knowing that Abraham's descendants would one day incur the death penalty on themselves, said, I'll be the one to walk through this sacrifice and the death penalty will be on me if I don't uphold my end of the covenant. So as opposed to his people facing death, God now substitutes himself and says, I'll be the one to take the death penalty. And really here we see a picture of Jesus in the New Testament. Here we have in the Old Testament this this beautiful image of what Jesus would eventually do for his people. All of humanity have broken their covenant with God. They have they've sinned against him. They've betrayed the covenant that they have made with God. And Jesus, he humbles himself. As opposed to being the king, the ruler of the universe, he humbles himself and becomes inferior. He becomes a servant to humanity. And he says, I'll be the one to take the death penalty rather than have you do it. Jesus, he humbles himself, becomes inferior, and he takes the death penalty that all of humanity deserves. Notice as well, even in verse 9, uh, and I might be reading into this a bit much, but I find it very interesting that the goats specifically are asked to be three years old, and that the ministry of Jesus also lasted for three years. And so we have this this three-year-old sacrifice for the sins of humanity so that Abraham and his descendants, us included, do not have to face the death penalty. So here in the Old Testament, all I can see in stories like this with Abram is the love of God, him being intimate, him being personal, and for whatever reason, him being faithful to humanity, him deciding to be loyal to his own creation, by coming down not only to their level, but becoming a servant to his own creation. So for me, when I read stories like this, I just can't understand how the belief that the God of the Old and New Testament can somehow be different. The same loving God in Genesis is the same divine being all the way through to Revelation. The same God who becomes a servant to humanity who dies in their place even though they broke the covenant 
and he was loyal and completely faithful. So this morning, the appeal that I have is very simple, and it's just to pick a passage in the Old Testament and read it this afternoon and just look for the love of God in the Old Testament. Because usually we do. Our preferences, we like stories in the New Testament, and the stories of Jesus, the epistles, are amazing and great, and we should be reading them. But we tend to stick away from the Old Testament because it's a little uncomfortable. But I hope that as we've, as we've unpacked this topic together, we've seen that the, uh, the love of God is continuous through the Old and New Testament. And even weird stories like this one where a sacrifice is split open in two, they have really deep connotations and deep meaning that show us the love of God. So I would encourage you, open up your Bibles, find somewhere in the Old Testament, maybe a story you've read before, maybe a story that you've never quite understood and you think maybe it's time that I really got down into this and figured out what's going on in this story. Where's the love of God in this story here? Um, and so uh, I thought uh, it might be helpful. Here are some suggestions that I put together that I think are good texts to start with. And I tried to pick stories that, again, we usually tend to avoid, but really have a, a richness and depth of God's love. Hosea 11 is a beautiful uh, image of God and his love for his people. Numbers 22, 24, when you turn there, you'll recognize the story and I think you'll be a bit uh, confused because usually we like to focus on the talking donkey part. That's Numbers 22. But there's a lot of great things that come, well, not only during that part, but also afterwards. First Kings 19, I'm sure, is a passage we've all read, but it's just a personal favorite of mine, so I couldn't help but put it in. And Jeremiah 32 is a very interesting passage showing how God relates to people in the culture they're in, and he, he deals with the morality that is available to people at that time. So those are just some suggestions that I was able to think of. But honestly, read anything. Read anything that appeals to you and that you feel the Holy Spirit leads you to read and find the love of God. This afternoon, spend some time really just basking in and enjoying reading the love of God in every page of the Bible, both the Old and New Testament. Thank you. Amen.